You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Lost Sheep and the Shrewd Manager, Jill Ravelli will open the eyes of our heart to understand the compassion of the shepherd as he seeks out the lost. Then Vix Golding will tackle the sensitive subject of making money with two stops and a start. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to our students for today's teaching. Hello and uh, welcome to Arise Ministries. Um, we'll just begin with a prayer, if that's okay. Uh, so Father, we just thank you for the privilege of being able to speak your word openly and freely. And we just ask you, Father, that you speak into our hearts. You open the eyes of our hearts, Father, and um, help us to receive your word in your precious name. Amen. Right, well, we've been doing parables in this module. So tonight we're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep, which is Luke 15. So I'm going to read from verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So, why parables? Why do you think Jesus used parables? Um, It's a parabola, that's Latin. Excuse my accent, which uh, the meaning, the definition of that is a placing beside, um, a comparison, an illustration to take something unclear and make it clear. And I love this. Um, To open the eyes of our hearts. It's very descriptive, isn't it? Uh, In Matthew 13.10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered, this is why. Although seeing, they do not see. Although hearing, they do not understand. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So why sheep as an example? Why did the Lord use sheep as an example? Well, apparently they have an intense social system, having relationships and bonding to other members of the flock, 
They protect each other from predators. They stay together to graze and they get very agitated if separated. Now sometimes the other sheep will follow the strayer if one sheep goes astray. The rest of the sheep might go that way even if it's not a good idea. They can be obstinate, they can be willful, they have an amazing field of vision and can see everything without turning their heads, which is quite helpful because they are a prey species and their defence is to flee. But they're reluctant to go where they can't see. They have scent glands in front of their eyes and their feet. They are emotionally, uh, emotional, apparently feeling afraid, angry, bored, sad, complex animals with interaction between emotions and cognition. Studies say sheep can be pessimists or optimists. So I'm just going to read Psalm 23. Uh, and I'm sure we all know this by heart, but it's just lovely to read it again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So why stray? Why st if we have this promise, why stray? Uh, we lived on Ashdown Forest for about 20 years uh, in Crowborough. And the road that, leaded, that led on to the main A22 was, uh, they had cattle grids each side. And uh, the sheep and the cattle grazed in this, on this road, basically, and not in the fields adjoining. And um, I have to say, I don't know whether Edward's been there, but um, the thing is that these sheep were just so stubborn. They would, you would drive in your vehicle and they would look at you blankly as if you weren't even there. And they just had no idea or reasoning, I suppose that's the difference, of, of, of um, moving out of the way. Um, they just used to stare blankly. Uh, they were very stubborn and very unhelpful, but perhaps that's to do with their, with their innocence. Um, I think it's interesting that if a sheep ends up on its back, it cannot get up without help. Uh, and a sheep will stray if it is unwell. So, who are the lost? Let's look at the lost. Now, who are the lost? I believe that it's those who have perhaps not heard the word, uh, perhaps the unreached people. Um, the scriptures say that actually, you know, we can see the God in creation, but... Um, I think that's a, that's a sort of interesting angle. Or they might have heard the word, um, but rejected it for some reason. Um, heard it, but weren't really listening, not really interested particularly. Uh, actually not noticing the importance in accepting that we all, all of us, have moral responsibilities. Uh, and haven't we all 
broken moral standards in one way or another. Uh, another look at the lost um, could be those, those caught up um, rules, regulations, rituals. Uh, there is a place for this, of course. But, but does that sort of take the joy away to a certain extent? Um, we lived in East Grinstead. I was born and raised in East Grinstead, actually. And there was a, a big television program um, a few years ago, um, and it was called Why East Grinstead? And they were talking about the cults that we had there, and there was a lot of cults in that area. I was um, a relatively new on-fire Christian, so uh, we used to have evenings with them. We'd get them to bring uh, different... Um, cults of the area we get them to bring their books and we would have a look at them and then look at the um, the authorized word um, and it was so interesting because um, they what happens is that things get changed very very covertly very slyly really um, and it changes the whole context of what the sovereign lord is is telling us um, so uh, I would say that that was the loss, the, the people who changed the word to suit their own agenda. Uh, not putting the word as, not putting the Lord as sovereign. Um, they have no joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So who or what are we worshipping? So who else are the lost? Now, this is, a, this is a tough one. It could be you or me. We've strayed. We separate from the flock. We drift. We have heard about Jesus, but sometimes our relationship with him was, was, was perhaps shallow and has faded. Uh, this is a strong word, but it, it's very descriptive. Perhaps a spiritual sepsis. It's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, it can be illness, um, it can be conflict. Uh, perhaps we're still hurting because of something unsolved or not realised. Uh, feeling broken, you know, it's, it's a very human thing, isn't it? Um, and that makes us feel like outsiders, backsliders, that word, uh, excluded. But we do have good news. Uh, in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, for this is what the Sovereign Lord says. He says, I myself shall search for my sheep and look after them. I shall rescue them from all the places where they are scattered. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So let's look at a shepherd's job. What does he do? What does, what's, is a shepherd's plan? He cares for his flock. He is responsible for their safety and welfare. He protects them. He leads them in the right direction. He will graze them, move them if necessary bring them back to bed them down, so to give them some rest. He will make sure, this one's interesting because I'm a hairdresser, he will make sure they get a haircut at the right time. <laughs> because if a sheep is too woolly, that's when he will end up on his back. 
And if he cannot turn over, he cannot turn over without help, and he can die if he's left. So, and also the shepherd uses his staff. We talked about the rod and the staff earlier. The, we used to call it a crook, rod and staff crook. Uh, that, that's an amazing implement. Have you, you've seen a crook, of course. And, you know, often the bishops often hold them, don't they? There's drawings of that. Uh, and it's an amazing implement because, uh, you know, what the shepherd used them for was to just gently prod the sheep. It was just a gentle prodding to keep them in line, to keep them in, on the right path. And then you've got the hook bit, which again, they would just gently put around the sheep's neck and just coax the sheep into the pen or wherever they were going to be at that point. So, you know, the shepherd's job is quite, quite a responsible one. So what happens when the shepherd finds the lost? Now, I have a big dog called Jezzy. And she loves everyone and expects everybody to love her. So she does wander off. She's very good at wandering off. And I have to say, I get quite irritated. Have to say that. Uh, and I catch up with her. She's a big, strong girl. But I have to say again, I tend to drag her a bit because she's, she's a big girl. And I gave her a bit of a telling off and she gets told she's a naughty girl, right? And the tail goes down momentarily, but not for long. But the amazing thing is with the good shepherd, not with Jesus, he lifts the lamb and puts it gently on his shoulders. This is a show of strength and of compassion. He doesn't complain. The lamb's not too heavy. There's no dragging back, no naughty lamb. In fact, the opposite takes place. There is rejoicing. There is rejoicing because the lost sheep has been found. Everyone is invited to enjoy the party. There is singing, dancing, celebration. I'm all for that. Uh, in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 11, it, he, it says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, human weakness is such an opportunity to display his divine power. Uh, Jesus has the ability to deliver, strengthen, and restore. He is both shepherd and sacrificial lamb. So John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one sheep and one shepherd. And I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to finish with one of my odes, Ode to Psalm 23. Lord, when I meditate on you exactly as you want me to and give you all the praise that's due, I'll understand your ways. You will meet my every need with you beside me to succeed. Thank you that you plant the seed and magnify my days. I cannot understand it all, 
why human kindness chooses to fall. With you alone, I shall stand tall. Take away my fear. So send me, Lord. Yes, I shall go. You will put me in the know, because you can shield me from my foe. Your love will never sway. Amen. And thank you. Welcome back to the second half. Um, I am going to speak about something that is not often spoken about in church and actually maybe is not often spoken about amongst friends or families. Um, and I think it's something that we often avoid speaking about, maybe because it brings quite big feelings up inside us. Um, I know for me personally, I have felt many different things around this subject. I've felt guilt, I've felt shame, I've felt longing, I've felt jealousy, I've felt pride. I'm going to be speaking about money. And maybe now you're thinking, phew, that's not what I was expecting. Or maybe you're thinking, oh no, I really don't want to be thinking about that. Um, and I love how God works because I don't want to be speaking about it either. Um, so my own experience is that I um, come from a family who did have a lot of money. And so my start in life was unbelievably comfortable and privileged and I had amazing opportunities. And I also had incredibly generous parents. So I wanted for nothing. And you might think, wow, that sounds really dreamy. And on one hand, it was and is really dreamy. But actually, it's meant that I've had a really complicated relationship with money. And so probably what I've done is just put Jesus' teachings about money in a box and not really allowed myself to engage with them. But there is so much teaching in the Bible about money. And you know that a quarter of the parables, I think it's even a, a little bit more than a quarter of the parables, are about money. Uh, it's said that 28% of the time that Jesus opened his mouth to speak, it was about money. And um, so I feel like I can't ignore it anymore. Chapter 15, which we've just heard about um, in Luke, was addressed to the Pharisees. But this chapter, chapter 16, that we're going to get onto in a little bit, was directed at Jesus' disciples, those people who are wanting to be with him and become like him and do the things that he does. And that's you and me. So this is something I think we really do need to engage with and listen to. And before we actually look at the parable, I'm going to tell you the three things that I think Jesus has been trying to say to me about money. And they may or may not resonate with you, but here we go. And it's two stops and a start. I think he's saying stop, stop, start. Stop acting as if the money you have is yours. Stop acting as if the money you have is yours. Stop clinging to what will fail. Stop clinging to what will fail. And start using your money to make friends for yourself. Start using money to make friends for yourself. Stop 
stop, start. Okay, let's look at the parable. That's where I'm heading. Let's see what comes out. The parable of the shrewd manager. It's Luke chapter 16, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. A really complicated parable. I'm going to just quickly paraphrase it. This is what I hear when I read it. So we've got a rich man and he has a manager who runs his estate and invests his money on his behalf. But this manager is not doing a great job. He's being unwise. He's being wasteful with his manager's money. So he's fired and he's given a termination period. So he, he will have to leave in a, in a period of time coming up, and the manager knows he's not going to be able to get another job doing the same thing that he's done because he's created these bad relationships uh, with the people in the town. So he comes up with a plan. And he goes to the people who owe money to his manager, to, sorry, to his boss, and he decides he's going to reduce the debt. He'll start to build a bridge with them, maybe try and create better relationships. And this is where some commentators say that what the manager actually did was to remove his fee so that the total amount was less. That was the, what, what he was doing to be shrewd. Um, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty because, to be honest, it's a bit complicated. But the outcome of the story really is that everyone's happy in the end. Uh, those who owe money are happy. They're going to be super excited because they owe less. The rich man's reputation is going to be um, undamaged. And the manager is going to have relationships that he can turn to in the future when he looks for another job. Yes, he's taken a financial hit, but he's started to make relationships. It is tricky. Commentators agree, which I'm really grateful for because I found it very difficult to understand. So I'm going to stick with the why. I always think like we can work out why is this story here? Why? Did Jesus include it in the stories he was telling to his friends? Well, I, th 
think if we look at all of the parables, there's a thread that runs through them, which is about the kingdom of God. They are your kingdom come stories. They're all reminding us, reminding the disciples of who God is and who we are. Who, like, what are our roles? What's going on here? Remember who God is. God's in charge, not me. And I think Jesus was trying to make sure that was impacted in every single part of people's lives. And here, he really wanted it to impact people's wallets, like how you're actually spending your money, your kingdom come, your way of doing things, God, not mine. Let that impact how I'm spending my money. So I think that's the, the kind of underlying why that's going on here. So let's really get into it. Remember I said we're going to have two stops and a start. So the first stop was stop acting as if the money you have is yours. Back to the story. Jesus uses the main character in the story. He, he is a manager. He's making a link. He's saying, in a way, you're also a manager. By choosing that character, I think he's making a really clear point. You also are in charge of someone else's money. The Greek word for manager is oikonomos, which means steward or overseer. And when you're in that role, if you're a steward of someone else's money, you can't just do whatever you like with it. So I think he's making a really clear point. You can't just do whatever you like with the money that you have. The money that you have isn't yours, it's God's. So stop acting as if it is. And, you know, at the beginning I told you that my feelings surrounding money have been quite complicated, but actually when I get into this, I think, wow, that's super exciting. Like that actually makes me think, well, this is, this is a bit of an adventure. Okay, if that is true, then what I need to do is really listen to the master. What does he want me to do with what I've got in my hands? Like, what a cool way to relate about what I have in my hands. So I feel like what's happened in me is there's a new prayer bubbling up. And maybe that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Like, there's a new way of thinking about what you've got in your hands. Let's work it out together. Let me tell you. And then go and do what I'm saying. And, you know, it's not surprising, really, that the disciples were forgetting this stuff. You know, maybe they had also started to internalize a message that we hear often, which is this message of achievement and reward. You know, maybe it's been ever thus. We hear messages like that so often. I mean, let's be honest. Have you ever heard people say, oh, well, yeah, that person's worked really hard. They've earned what they have. They deserve that. They deserve that lifestyle. They've worked really hard. Or what about this? If I have money, I made that money. It was my hard work, my savvy. I did that. We're conditioned to think like that. I think Jesus is saying, no, it's not your money. 
You're looking after it for someone else. You're a steward, you're an overseer, you're a manager. And Tim Keller uh, unpacks it brilliantly. So I'm just going to use his words for a moment. This is how he puts it. Okay, if we go down that path of what well, I've worked really hard, let's think about that. Okay, well, I've worked really hard with what? You might say, well, I'm alive. Well, it's quite difficult to make money if you're not alive. You might say, well, I'm really healthy. Well, if we're honest, we live in a world where we know that actually slowly we're unraveling physically. And a better question might be to ask, well, isn't it amazing that God has held me together for this long, that I can still get up each day? So every day that I'm alive and every day that I'm healthy, healthy enough to go to work, it's a gift. That's a gift from God. Okay, well then you might say, what about my talents? That I've worked really hard to refine my talents. Well, where did I get those? And then what about my circumstances? And this is what Timothy Keller says. He says, if I had been born in a mountain, on a mountain in Tibet in the 13th century, I might have worked really hard, but I wouldn't have got very far. I have worked really hard with the circumstances God gave me, the talents God gave me, the life God gave me. It's not mine, it's God's. And somebody who knew this really well was King David. He knew who he was. He knew who God was. And he was able to say with confidence, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. And boy, I mean, David had reason to boast. He was an amazing king. But he goes on, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Stop acting as if the money you have is yours. And then stop clinging to what is going to fail. Stop clinging to what will ultimately fail you. If we think back to our story, to our manager, there's a moment in the parable where through adversity, through something being taken away from him, he has an awakening. There's like a moment of realization. I don't know about you, I suspect we can probably all speak of moments like that. I know for me, not that long ago, we moved to Hastings, been a teacher for 20 years. Mark and I had been living um, abroad. We moved to Hastings thinking that life would continue as it always had. But we found it incredibly difficult to find jobs. We found it incredibly difficult to find a home. Everything just felt really stacked against us. And what we had assumed was an ordinary way of life just didn't seem to be happening. And I think for us, we came to the same moment. I think he says, 
Um, the manager says, what shall I do now? I mean, we definitely got to the, I don't, what shall we do now moment? What shall we do now? And Jesus says in the, in the um, parable, when I tell you, use wealth, worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, he's saying, this is going to happen. It's not a surprise for like one or two people. There is going to come a point where we all have these moments where we suddenly think, oh, what I thought was is no longer. What am I going to do now? So I feel like what Jesus is trying to say is there's no investment. There's no material possession. There's no asset. There's no place. None of that is going to really last. It's like money and material wealth promises so much. It offers us so much. But it kind of muffles our real need of Jesus. It's really sneaky because that stuff, Jesus is saying, it will eventually break or die or rebel against us. It's not going to last when he is being really clear it probably is going to happen, and maybe for some of us, we've already tasted that. Uh, I know that some of you love reading, because I know some of you, and you may well have read a book called The Salt Path. I meant to bring it along with me, and I forgot, but it's a brilliant story, so I recommend reading it. And um, it's a story about a couple in their 50s, and they're just moving into that lovely stage of life where you're starting to settle down. And a series of circumstances mean that they lose everything. They lose their home, they lose their financial stability, they lose their reputation, and they even the husband's health really starts to fail. And the way that the author puts it, she says, the whole construct of our life had gone. The whole construct of our life had gone. What I thought was going to be something really firm wasn't anymore. So they put on backpacks and they pack a tent, which is really all they've got left, and they decide they're going to walk. And so they go on this amazing walk along the south coast path. And it takes them months. Um, and the book really is about their journey. So it's very slow. If you don't like a slow read, maybe avoid it. But it's beautiful. And what happens is they start to find each other. They find beauty, they find simplicity, they start to make room for wonder and for awe, and they start to make room for the people that they meet along the way. And they're really surprising interactions. They're people that maybe they wouldn't have given the time of day to before, and they find that strangers start to feel like neighbours and neighbours as friends. So I think those guys in the story, I know I certainly can relate, and we see the manager as well. Something happens, and it gives him an opportunity to think differently. It's this moment of not holding on to a false sense of security, a false sense of significance. It's as if he's starting to make space for something different. I think Jesus is saying, stop clinging, stop holding on to something that is really ultimately going to fail you. 
I need your hands to be empty. I need you to have open hands. Why? And this is where we get to the start. So stop acting as if the money you have is yours. Stop clinging to what is ultimately going to fail, fail you. I need you to have open hands because I want you to start using your money to make friends for yourself, to gain friends for yourself. Put your money into something that long-term is going to be way more valuable. And that's relationships. If we look back in verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Send your money forwards. Spend it on something that long-term is going to be much more valuable. And I've been really wrestling with that and thinking, what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think it's maybe something quite close to home and something further. Um, so making friends for myself, I was thinking, okay, well, practically speaking, once I've done all the responsible stuff that I need to do with my pot of money, I think, you know, each month there's a pot and I need to do the responsible things with my pot. Okay, but there might be a little bit left over in my pot. Like, what, what do you want me to do with it? What does that mean to make friends? Well, it could be, you know, to buy a coffee for a friend. It could be to share my home. It could be that we offer our home to a family who needs it for a little bit if we're not going to be there, or to buy a bunch of flowers, or make an extra meal and give it to somebody. Like, how creatively... Can I actually foster friendship close to home for me? How can, I, how can we, how can I, in my little family, start to use our money to grow relationships? I do think it's that, but I think it's also something else. I think it's close and there's something about, if we think back to that salt path story, starting to see people differently starting to make space for people that maybe I wouldn't ordinarily have made space for. I think there's something about blessing neighbours, starting to see strangers, people that I wouldn't ordinarily speak to or make space for, see them as neighbours and start to see my neighbours as my friends. People in my ordinary, everyday life, who might one day say, thank you for caring about me. Thank you for opening your home to me. Thank you for rearranging your life to make room for me. I read a story recently, some of you might have heard it before, about Bill Gates. He is the co-founder of Microsoft, and he spent much of his adult life being the richest person in the world. And he has said that he would rather pay for vaccines than travel to Mars, which he does not think is a good use of money. And I, that struck me. I love that phrase. It's not a good use of money. He says this. It's actually quite expensive to go to Mars. <laughs> Understatement. You can buy measles vaccines and save lives for £814 per life saved, 
he told the BBC. And so that kind of grounds you as in don't go to Mars. And by contrast, his fellow entrepreneur Elon Musk, who is also wildly wealthy, he has said that he wants to colonize Mars. And we can make all sorts of immediate judgments, but I just think it's interesting to sit with that. Um, if we're being asked to think about neighbors as friends, we have, we have choices to make with the money that we have. You know, and I could easily detach myself from a story like that and think, well, those guys are wildly wealthy, but I also get to make choices. I'm also a manager and I also have to choose. So maybe a choice that I can make is that I'm not going to spend money at the expense of people. That might be the clothes that I choose to wear or the bank that we choose to bank with. You know, there are, there are choices that I can start to think about. I'm, I'm not going to do anything at the expense of people. Or I'm not going to continually accumulate savings for myself if I know that I could spend it on mending broken lives. And I don't want to sound pious and I don't want to sound like I'm, I've got it all right. I promise you, this is new to me and I'm really trying to wrestle with it and work it out myself. But... You know, this month, I did think we've been trying to put a little bit of money in a holiday pot. <laughs> and then I thought, I, I see, I'm seeing all these stories about what's going on in Turkey and Syria. Maybe the little bit that I'm going to put in a holiday pot, I'm actually going to put into a different pot. Just a really simple choice. You know, is it for me or could I put it somewhere else? It's just a really simple thing that we've been wrestling with and probably will ever wrestle with. Um, just going to read you, one of my favorite writers is a man called Henry Nowen, and he says this. He or she who cares is invited to be poor, to strip himself or herself from the illusions of ownership and to create some room for the person looking for a place to rest. The paradox of care is that poverty makes a good host. When our hands, our heads and our hearts are filled with worries, concerns and preoccupations, there can hardly be any place left for the stranger to feel at home. Just love that idea of making space. You know, if we're gripping onto, clinging onto, holding onto stuff that ultimately we can't take with us, and it's probably going to fail us at some point, wouldn't it be better to have open hands? And while Jesus was the perfect example of this, wasn't he? You know, if you think of each of the points we've made. Stop acting as if the money you have is yours. Well, Jesus always, always, the glory went to his father. He knew what riches were available to him, both materially, but also emotionally. Boy, he had everything available to him. But time and again, we know that he said, I only do what I see my father doing. Time and again, he went back to time with his father, like got his mission, 
and then out into the world, he was acting on behalf of his father. And then we said, stop clinging to what we know will fail. Well, Jesus attached to nothing in this world. He detached himself from everything material. He emptied himself of everything. It says this in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Use what you have to make friends for yourself. Jesus spent all to make room for everybody. He spent everything, even his own life, to make enemies friends. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.